We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are talking about the new Warner Brothers film, WW84, Wonder Woman 84, the highly anticipated sequel to the smash 2017 original Wonder Woman film. Uh, Jesse, you want to give us a summary of Wonder Woman 84? Sure. The movie starts off with a flashback back to uh, the Amazon Island uh, which we saw much of in the first film. Thermosteria or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, some, something like that. Uh, and we see Wonder Woman Diana Prince as a child competing uh, in an athletic competition, ends up winning the competition, but uh, cheats, uh, finds a shortcut, and uh, is stopped uh, at, the, at the end. Uh, Antiopia, I believe, uh, is is the name of Robin Wright's character, um, and she's uh, Diana Prince's aunt, the general of the Amazon army, and she stops her to teach her this lesson of, you know, you can never cheat your way to success. Uh, you know, you you will never succeed in that way. And then it that's the what the filmmakers, what Patty Jenkins wants us to get from the story. It flashes forward to 1984, Washington, D.C. We see uh, Diana Prince as Wonder Woman wearing the really late 70s, early 80s Wonder Woman outfit from the TV show when Linda Carter starred as Wonder Woman. And she's stopping a uh, jewelry heist in a mall you got the lasso, you got everything, you know, you have her wristbands. Uh, fast forward to Diana Prince uh, back working at the Smithsonian Institute and her friends, Kristen Wiggs, Barbara, who is the dorky friend who nobody recognizes. Barbara is a gemologist and comes across a stone, which turns out to be the dream stone. And that dream stone uh, ends up being able to fulfill all your dreams, those who hold on to it and make a wish, but you have to give up a prized possession as a result. Max Lord, who is a one of Wonder Woman's villains from the comics, from the DC comics, played uh, in this movie by Pedro Pascal, the Mandalorian. Uh, he plays sort of this typical uh, Gordon Gecko, Donald Trump, greed is good, I'm going to step on the little guy um, type of villain. And he ends up absorbing the Dreamstone. He becomes a uh, physical Dreamstone himself. Every person he touches who wishes for something, he grants it, but he takes away from them and kept keeps wanting more and more power. The dream that Diana Prince ends up dreaming is for Steve Trevor, Chris Pine, her love interest from 
the first movie, which took place in World War One, who had died in the first movie uh, to come back to life. And he magically appears. Turns out, spoiler alert, that she ends up starting to lose her Wonder Woman Amazon powers as a result. And so she knows what she has to do eventually to say goodbye to him in order to gain her powers back. Meanwhile, what Kristen Wiggs, Barbara, dreams about is to... Um, be more like Diana Prince, not knowing that she's a demigoddess, not knowing she's an Amazon princess and ends up gaining all the strength and beauty. And she turns into Cheetah, which is a really weird change at the end. Um, Wonder Woman ends up saving the day by using her lasso to lasso around uh, Pascal's, uh, Maxwell Lord's ankle and to understand that, you know, people can't just take what they want. They can't just, the lasso of truth she uses to communicate with the world uh, and people end up renouncing their wishes as a result and everybody lives happily ever after. It was very 80s, like there's a cold war where there's about to be World War Three at any minute and everybody's on edge and yet everybody only cares about success and money. Uh, very Wall Street-esque in that regard. Uh, and it ends the mid credit scene as a cameo from television's Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, who uh, shows up and makes an appearance there as Asteria, who's the legendary Amazon warrior who um, had possessed this golden wing suit, which we had never heard of before or knew about, but we see in that opening scene flashback, which um, Gal Gadot's uh, Wonder Woman ends up wearing in the last climax fight scene when she fights Cheetah. Okay, as you no doubt uh, intimated from Jesse's detailed description, uh, this movie is a lot. So Jesse, let's start here. What did what did you think of the movie? Yeah, <laughs> um, I really wanted to like it. Um, I, I have to admit, I'm really a Marvel stan, right? I am very hard on DC movies, especially the failed attempt to make this DC extended universe to try to copy the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and I, I've not been impressed with any of these DC movies in the extended universe. I was not really a huge fan of the first Wonder Woman, uh, although it was one of the better movies in the extended universe, the DC extended universe. Uh, I really wanted to like this movie and it was super confusing. The acting was pretty poor. Um, the villains were very just cookie cutter. Um, Barbara Minerva, uh, Cheetah was essentially Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy and Batman and Robin and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman and Batman Returns. Like, I, so would, I would argue a little bit of Jim Carrey's Riddler thrown in, <laughs> in there. For, but for but it was like, although, although Pedro Pascal's character also had some of, uh, especially the uh, third act had, had some of uh, Jim Carrey's Riddler in there too. But it was sort of like the very much she's all that. Oh, this woman is dorky and not attractive because she's wearing glasses. And all of a sudden she takes off her glasses and she's this beauty that men sort of Google over. Um, I, I was disturbed by- I appreciate the that use of the word Google. Google. Um, I, I was disturbed by the- acknowledgement and this was very real in the 80s of the misogyny of the 80s of men with power feeling like they could take control over any woman that they wanted um my biggest issue is with it as a sequel 
that it's a huge jump from World War One to 1984, and we have no idea what Wonder Woman was doing. In a weird way, we knew the Wonder Woman of present day most because we were introduced to her working in the Smithsonian Institute in uh, Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, where she was really just thrown into because they rushed the whole Justice League movie. I, I right. don't it's, know. It's not like it's not like Steve Trevor. Uh, not uh, not Steve, Steve Rogers. Steve, Steve Rogers, who was you know put in ice and then uh, thawed out in in the two thousands. Right. This right. is right. And we're, this, and we're right. No explanation on... as to how society doesn't realize that this woman who has uh, presumably been working in the Smithsonian Institution for, for like, decades yeah. hasn't aged at all. Yeah. And, and we know right the Amazon the the whole comic book um, canon is that the Amazon women on this island, that once they reach um, peak strength of their abilities, they no longer age, which is explains why she could be a child. Uh, they have flashbacks of a child, but she never ages from World War One until 1984. The problem is in the mid credit scene, they show Linda Carter, who has certainly aged since she was Wonder Woman in the late 70s, early 80s. So that's flawed. I appreciated the reference to the invisible jet, but it was weird. It didn't make sense. Her flying, uh, it, it was it was all just a stretch for me. And um, now I'm going to be really nitpicky. I wish the CGI was better. Some of the CGI oh, was really yeah. good. Mm -hmm. And some of it was just like, did somebody make this on, on like their MacBook? <laughs> so that, um, that was really unfortunate. I really wanted to like it. And again, I, I, don't know how much of my criticism is because I think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Studios could do no wrong. Uh, and I'm very critical of DC movies, but uh, it left a right. lot to be desired. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I had a slight, slightly more mixed reaction to it. I, I, like you, definitely wanted to like it. Like you, I think that uh, the 2017 Wonder Woman um, is the best of the so-called DC um, Extended Universe films that that exist so far um uh, although I, I think a strong contender for number two would be man of steel which uh or shazam or, or shazam that's actually true I, I really like shazam um but that you know man of steel retroactively i guess started the dc extended universe uh under the um auspices of uh that noted auteur uh zach snyder um, we can have another conversation about him and his vision for the DC Extended Universe later. Uh, but I but I liked Wonder Woman 2017 a lot. Um, it did also in some ways have uh, just as simple a, a, a message, simple a theme uh, as Wonder Woman 84, right? Wonder Woman 84 is basically greed is bad and Wonder Woman uh, original is uh is you know war, war is, is bad, bad yeah right but at least wonder woman 84 i don't remember it being as as long and overstuffed and labored you know people the original um, the 2017 the, 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 the yeah sorry not 84 uh the 2017 wonder woman not as long as as labored as overstuffed it was a much simpler story um you know people have nitpicked about the cgi battle at the end of wonder woman it didn't bother me quite as much as it bothered other people but this uh uh you know had had you know just 
cringeworthy CGI, especially in that third act, especially at the end, especially in the reveal of uh, of the fully cheetified Barbara Minerva, um, which uh, apparently was, you know, they, they knew that they had a problem with the CGI on their hands because they set that whole sequence in um, in, a, in in the dark, basically. You know, it was like uh, the battle for Winterfell uh, <laughs> uh, darkness level uh, that it made it impossible to see what was going on in it. Um, you know, I think that Pedro Pascal um, put in a, a, an extraordinary performance. I mean, like the, the range right. of acting that he did in this movie to try to sell this character. It was a very know, shallow character without much right. depth and he did his best. Right. Um, and that also, you know, I, I think that, I think that, uh, by, by the way, I think Kristen Wiig uh, put in a great performance. I, I did not see as much of a, um, certainly in, in theme, but not necessarily in performance. I didn't see too many shades of Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, who's who's arguably the best uh, movie DC villain, uh, with probably a close tie between her and Heath Ledger's Joker. Um, very different portrayals. Um, but I thought their performances were great. You know, I think that one of the challenges of this uh, film is, uh, and, and I think there the was a recognition of that on, on the part of Patty Jenkins, the filmmaker, um, is that... Um, and I, and I hate to say this is going to be a hot take and I'm going to probably get some, you know, uh, hate tweets for this, but um, the Rabbi Knopf on Twitter, <laughs> the limitations of uh, Gal Gadot as an actor, um, I, I think uh, really showed in this. She does not have a significant uh, range of uh, emotion. She's a great physical uh, actor. She embodies that Wonder Woman character really well. I love how the movie really did play. Um, and I thought, wish they would have gone for, wish they would have emphasized this even more as a theme because it was present. They just didn't pull the thread enough of the misogyny of the 80s. I've never seen a movie dwell, especially a mainstream movie like this, dwell so much on the on the male gaze um, and, yeah. uh, and and and, the cat and what call. that right the cat calls like what that experience is like. Um, there's this incredibly satisfying scene where uh, Barbara Minerva, Kristen Wiig's Barbara Minerva, uh, just completely obliterates. Um, a person who had uh, assaulted her, a man who had assaulted her uh, earlier in the film. So there's a lot to like about this movie. And I found myself, the, the parts where Wonder Woman was being Wonder Woman, I enjoyed. I, I, I think it's not, I think we can all agree that uh, it's a stretch of canon for Woman, Wonder Woman to fly. Um, the, the way in which they did the, uh, the invisible jet left a little bit to be desired, although I thought it looked cool. Um, you know, but, but Wonder Woman just like beating up guys, uh, and being Wonder Woman, I, I found very satisfying. Like those scenes, the movie really came to life and there just wasn't enough of it. It was, it was not a Wonder Woman story. It was well, they also on... never explained it, right? The, the second opening scene, there were really two opening scenes. Right. The first on the Amazon islands, um, the, what's it called? Thermoscaria, Thermoscaria, yeah. And then the then the second opening scene is 1984 DC in the mall, and there was never. We don't know what led to her to be this superhero. That's the problem. I don't need an origin story. I guess the first movie was well, sort was of that origin story. Kind of an origin story, yeah. But it was an origin. But what led to her, you know. Be, I mean, it's almost like the amazing Spider-Man, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Like you don't count on one of the strongest superheroes in DC to be stopping a jewel thief in a local mall. 
so that that is how she's spending her time. There was no backstory to that. I, I, I had a problem with the big gap. Right. She was she was saving uh, people from wandering into traffic also. And, you know, listen, I think that there were kind of shades of that, of the um, of uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Right. Where where um, uh, uh, Tony Stark says to Peter Parker, you know, just focus on being a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man for a while. Right. So she does in the same kind of way that you that you are first introduced to the Marvel era Spider-Man Marvel uh, cinematic universe era Spider Spider Man uh, in uh, Captain America three where he's you know Civil War basically right. like trying to save the world uh, and then he goes back to a much smaller kind of role of you know stopping ATM thieves in Queens right and so you have this kind of here which I I, I that didn't bother me quite so much right I think that the first um, the first Wonder Woman film was really, you know, in addition to the theme of, you know, war is bad, she was really grappling with the question of, you know, is the world of uh, human beings worth saving? And and so she's, I think, living into that, you know, on some level in this in this film, right? She's saving human beings, in, you know, in, in, in sort of mundane circumstances. Um, that didn't quite bother me. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't mind that, you know, quite so much, uh, but they didn't really deal with it in a, in a serious way. They didn't deal with the, the ramifications of living in a world, like people act like they had never heard of or seen Wonder Woman before, but like Wonder Woman, uh, she's been doing it. She's been doing the world, it for like years. ended World War One. I. I mean, yeah. you know, so uh, <laughs> it seems like a hard thing for people to forget, but uh, but here's here's the, the the biggest irony, and here's maybe where we can pivot to talk about a little bit about the Jewish significance of, of this movie, or the Jewish thoughts that we have about about this movie. So really, the movie centers on the theme, you know, greed is bad. Uh, there's one moment in which uh, Pedro Pascal's character says, you know, um, there's only one thing, or maybe it's actually another character says, you know, there's only one thing that every person wants, which is more. Right, and so there, there is a commentary there about uh, about the human condition that I think is a really Im Im worthwhile commentary to make. That 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 you know, it's like Bruce Springsteen said. Um, I think he also may have said this in the '80s uh, in the song "Badlands." Poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied till he rules everything. Right, so that's I think endemic to the human condition. The '80s is a great place to set that story because it was this era of excess and, and the boom of wall streets right gordon gecko greed is good right uh and it's also in some ways a commentary on you know this era in, in which we're living is sort of the apotheosis of that of, of that ethos right donald trump being a creature of the 1980s really being a similar kind of character to pedro pascal's villain in this right so we see the 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 results writ large of a culture of of rewarding and celebrating excess uh, and bombast and the relentless pursuit of more, um, even at the expense of one's own humanity and and the humanity of everybody else around you. So it had something there to talk about. It's ironic that um, that you know that that a movie that's about greed being bad is situated in a DC extended universe that is sort of predicated on you know trying to get what Marvel had, recapture some of the magic that Marvel had, and in a movie that is just way more than it needs to be. I, I think that's all true. Um, and while we can say, uh, we could teach Ben Zoma's teaching of right, that we learn in Mishnah, one, who is rich, one who's happy with their portion, 
the the movie begins by telling us that you cannot cheat your way to success, right? That that is supposed to be the underlying theme. And even though that's the climax with the, the lasso of truth that, oh, you know, Maxwell Lord's dreamstone human person can't cheat his way to success. That's still not the reality of the world we're living in. So Wonder Woman saved the day from, you know, World War Three, potentially, but we still live in a world full of theodicy, right? We still live in a world where people do cheat their way to success, where s- some of the worst human beings on this planet get elected president of the United States. Well, and, well, right, but, but Jesse, you know, that's, I think it's a really Im- important point. And I think about that a lot too, but, but, you know, some of those stories haven't been completed yet, right? Like, so yes, Donald Trump did get elected president of the United States. We don't know the end of that story, right? So, uh, I mean, I think that you can make an argument that, and, and the, the Bible certainly makes this argument over and over again in some of its heroes, right? That, um, that, that ill-gotten gain receives its comeuppance eventually. Yeah, I think that that is a, there's also a, a rabbinic notion to that, right? Um, the sort of Talmudic version of karma right. uh, that when, the Jewish people were in exile in Babylonia. They had to be reassured and saying, actually their reward will come in the world to come. And those who are in power now who are ruling over us, their punishment will come in the world to come in the afterlife because they couldn't explain this idea that we live in a world where sometimes terrible people, at least from the outside looking in, are in positions of power and the right people, the good people, um, are not. And so it, it begs the question when um, Diana Prince's aunt tells her, like, you can't cheat your way to success at that opening scene. It's not that she will succeed as a result of not cheating. She may fail or, or other people may continue to cheat their way to success just because other people are doing it. That doesn't mean that she should. Yeah, that's all right. You, the, you're, the, the Talmud already, you know, uh, reflects on this question of, you know, tzaddik viralo, rasha vitovlo, right? That, that we live in a world in which, you know, the, the righteous suffer and the, uh, and, and the wicked sometimes flourish. Um, you, there, there, you know, there are places in, in Tanakh that, uh, that deal with that question too. I think that, you know, the, the movie presents a pretty bleak view of humanity in, in that framework, which is that given the choice, every single person would cheat their way to success. Given the option, given the, if it were an option available to people, to, sure. Right, it may not be an option available to many people. Maybe everybody you know, might cut a corner every now and again, you know, sort of innocuously or not, right? But um, but the the premise of the movie, right, is that the entire world, save Diana Prince, um, when given the choice, cheated their way to the success, and, and she herself in this movie even tried to do so, right? With right, exactly, right. So not save Diana Prince. We don't. But I I was convinced until you know the 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 third act, the end of the third act, that um, that we were going to see some kind of comeuppance about the fact that Steve Trevor um, was reanimated in some other dude's body, right? Like like the that there had to be some kind of um, confrontation with that reality that uh, that that somebody had to suffer because Steve uh, Trevor came back to life. 
we never got that. I think, un unfortunately, it would have been interesting for the for the story to go there in some way. We got this kind of like weird thing where, you know, Diana loses her powers, sort of. Um, and then we have this- Right, um, sort of. Uh, then we have this, I think it's a Superman 2, where Superman has to make a decision about whether he's going to, you know, live as a human as Clark Kent so that he can be with, uh, the love of his life, Lois Lane, um, or is he going to, re you know, reject love and, and embrace being Superman? I think that's Superman too. Um, there's a lot of callbacks to Richard Donner's Superman films in, in this in this movie. Um, but so I guess Jesse, the question then to me is, you know, um, is the Jewish traditions uh, lesson of, uh, in relation to this similar to Robin Wright's character? Right. That uh, that that that, you know, it's just a sort of moralistic. Right. Even if it, even if you would benefit by it, um, you can't. Be greedy. Right. You can't shortcut your way to you're not that you can't, but you shouldn't. Right. Because it's morally bad. It's not it, it's not going to have a necessarily a, a, a consequence for you. Um, but that seems muddled by the movie that seems to say, like, no, the, the consequences of you doing it are actually horrific. Yeah, um, and, and I think that's the problem, right? The consequences don't lead to this World War III global extinction possibility that we saw at the end of, of this movie, this the climax of this movie. I think Judaism certainly does teach that. I think um, the idea of piety, the idea of not um, comparing oneself to others, right? It's the famous Reb Zussia, uh Hasidic tale of when Reb Zussia is on his deathbed his students see that he's crying and they say, Rabbi, why are you crying? You're this, uh, th this great scholar. And he says, I'm crying because when I meet the, the Holy One, when I, when I meet God uh, in the world to come, I'm not worried that God will ask me, why weren't you more like Moses who took the Israelites out of Egypt? Why weren't you more like Joshua who led them into the promised land? I'm worried that they will say, Zusia, why weren't you more like Zusia? Uh, and it's Judaism is very much about we judge ourselves based on our attempts to be the best version of ourselves, not trying to have what others uh, have and, and focusing on what we lack. Uh, so certainly I think Judaism is about that. I, I do think the idea of um, cheating in general is very subjective uh, right, that I, I cringe at those who claim to be pious in our faith, uh, but are actually really assholes, right? Terrible people. Um, that they their definition of pi piety is a strict adherence to halakha, to Jewish law, but the way they talk about other people, the way they treat other people uh, is despicable. And so Halakha, Jewish law sometimes overlooks that need for human interaction and how we treat other, which Rabbi Akiva argues is the greatest and most fundamental of all of our laws. Well, right. I think that that, you know, really struck me in, in this movie is it really raises the question, you know, not only is it complicated to say like what, you know, what, what, what makes piety and, and what constitutes uh, cheating or, or um, uh, not living up to your highest ideals. Um, but also the movie, I think, complicates the question of what makes a good person, because I think that like by and large, most people see themselves as, I, 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 would, I, I would actually like, you know, put down a wager that 100% of people 
on some level, like see themselves as, as, a, as a good person, right? There may be some people who like have done a bad thing and, and like, you know, have this kind of self-image that they're bad. So maybe it's not 100% of people, but most people, like there's very few people who wake up in the morning and say like, how can I be evil today, right? Most people see themselves as good, justify their actions through the prism of their own fundamental goodness, right? And, um, and, and live their lives as like basically well-meaning uh, people or, or, you know, it's, it's one of the challenges of, you know, when we talk about something like white fragility, um, something that we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, one of the, one of the kind of sources of white fragility is, is people's association, I think rightly on some level with, you know, uh, racist equals bad person. It's like, well, like if you're calling me racist, then that means I'm a bad person, but I'm not a bad person. So I can't therefore be racist. Right. And so it's sort of untangling those things. So here you have a circumstance where, you know, the vast majority of the world's people are all kind of like wishing to get ahead. You know, for, for many of them, like their wishes are relatively in and of themselves, maybe relatively innocuous. They just want more, right? They want to be able to pay their bills. You know, they want, they, they want to settle a grudge. They want to, whatever it is. Right. But the effect of them is, um, is both, on a small and large scale, you know, is really pernicious, right? Like one, one person's wish is a nightmare for another person. And it is the preponderance of the actions, the collective result of the actions of these otherwise um, presumably and seemingly good people that, um, that, that propel a terrible person um, into a, a a position of immense power. So I think that is, you know, one of the Jewish insights from this text is that from this movie um, uh, that we can draw is that, you know, uh, is that uh, evil doesn't exist in a vacuum. Evil is perpetuated and supported uh, and, and maintained uh, by the, by the like, otherwise seemingly relatively innocuous acts or 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 or, or uh, refraining from action um, of like the average person right and so we're living in that reality right now where um, where there is you know evil clinging to power through the uh, tacit support and explicit support of you know tens of millions of people including people of positions of, of of incredible power themselves right and so we're living through something that we thought was relegated to a historical past of you know you know like what like where was the average german right uh the good german during the holocaust and the answer is um well if you depends on how you define good if you define good as somebody who you know tried their hardest to resist the Nazi regime at every turn and save the lives of Jews and others who were targeted by the state, then yes, like they existed and we know some of their names. Um, but if you are saying like you know the the average person who just like you know sort of wanted to like put their nose down and and get ahead in life, um, even if they weren't actively anti-Semitic or even if they never cast a vote for Hitler, um, then the answer is much more complicated. Like they were there and maybe they weren't so good. Or they were also worried about their 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 own safety and you know the the bully bullies somebody else out of fear that they themselves will be the victim. Um, can I shift gears slightly, Mike? Yeah. One of the things that I was most excited about in the previews, which also left me somewhat disappointed, aside from some of the wardrobes that were worn, 
was that this movie was set in the 80s. You saw a little bit of that uh, when Chris Pines is Steve Trevor is trying to uh, fit in and what clothes he should wear. Uh, that was a great scene. That was a great scene. In. It was a great scene. One of the few comedic scenes. That's yeah. the other thing that the DC extended universe does not do well uh, yeah. is add appropriate humor in a way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is great at. But, but Chris, uh, but Chris, uh, Chris Pine putting in a, a strong case for best Hollywood Chris. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. The, the, the Hemsworths, the uh, Pratt's, the Evans, they all have something to say about that. Anyway, um, I was really excited and, and disappointed. I, I was excited for that 80s nostalgia. And we see a lot of that now. We see that with uh, season three of Cobra Kai just came out on Netflix. And there's a lot of flashbacks to the original Karate Kid movies. Uh, one of my favorite Netflix shows is Stranger Things, which is set in the 80s. And there's a lot of great 80s nostalgia there. Um, and even though this was set in 1984, there wasn't as much 80s nostalgia as I would have expected aside from the whole greed element of the 80s. But I sort of wonder what was it that made me so excited about this movie set in the 80s, about longing for what was really a, a pretty terrible time, right? The Reagan presidency, um, it, it was... Uh, the height of the Cold War, right? The height of the AIDS epidemic. That's um, by the, the way, I, I don't was not able to. I don't address. understand how the president in this movie was not Ronald Reagan. Like that was a sort of logic leap that they didn't explain. Right. Anyway, um, what is it that makes us sort of yearn for previous experiences and and pastimes? It's sort of like when we read. Uh, Right. right? That's that uh, renew us as in days of old, that we yearn for a better time. It's almost, and I, I hate to even say these words, but it's almost like when Trump and his MAGA movement says, make America great again, they want to go back to a time when life was better for them, right? Even though it was pretty terrible for other people and they mistreated other people. I don't know if the 80s was better for most of us. Right. Uh, we live in a more just and equitable society now than we certainly did then. Uh, but what is it about us that makes us yearn for experiences of the past? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really great question. Personally, I was hoping for just more 80s soundtrack um you know maybe long for the days of the wedding singer uh and there's you know the 80s is having you know a, a great cultural moment in in other ways right now like the new miley cyrus album is a very like 70s and 80s like glam rock uh, uh masterpiece uh and uh and so i i love that i i wish i you know we could have had more of your i don't know your your cures your uh news order your 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 flocks of seagulls is right uh i wanted more of that in in the movie uh, i think that the issue of nostalgia is um that you know we we tend this is very human we tend to fetishize once what once made us happy um we we dream that it will uh, again fulfill those same needs that it that it once scratched for us before and we often neglect to understand that in changed circumstances the thing for which we long will no longer fit um and it could even hurt us um i, I was thinking about this a lot back in uh 2016 that was the same year that uh something uh 
significant happened in our political uh, climate, but also the year that um, that Full House, I think 2017, maybe that uh, that the Fuller House sequel came out on Netflix, which is kind of the first major 80s reboot that uh, right. Netflix had produced. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it's present in, as you said, in Trump's, you know, make, a great, make America great rhetoric. Um, you know, consider that slogan for a moment, right? Trump promises to make America great, which implies that uh, it, uh, make that it great it again. Once was right. Make America great again, which implies that it was once great. Um, you know, without ever actually saying, you know, when it was, that was great. Right. Like you mentioned, you know, if you look at the golden eras, so-called golden eras of the past, we realized that they weren't um, actually so golden. And uh, especially for people who don't look like uh, or live like me or you. Um, and, uh, and so, it means that nostalgia is a really noxious lure because it 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 sort of uh, beckons us back to to lionize a time um, that in hindsight looks really good to us, but uh, first of all wasn't so great then for at least not for everybody, and certainly wouldn't be great now if we were to uh, return there. That's why um, the in the book of Ecclesiastes we're warned: um, do not say. Why were earlier times better than these? For it is not wise of you to ask that question. It's, it's the anxiety of the present moment, right? And the uncertainty of the future, I think, especially in this time, a very anxious and, and nervous time, um, uh, uncertain time that makes us long to reappropriate what may have worked in the past. Um, the children of Israel keep on wanting to return to Egypt after having been freed from slavery. Um, but just as it was for them, and just as it was, as it is when I like try to squeeze into pants that I was wearing when I was in high school, um, it's usually a grave mistake. Uh, and so I think our tradition would call us to resist that human temptation to graft the past onto the present, um, that we should strive to adopt today's solutions, not yesterday's. Um, to not look back and to keep facing forward. Amen. I think I, I think that's fair. I, I think it doesn't change the fact that we still do look back. That memory and history is powerful, and sometimes the power of memory is that we can distort it, however we see fit. That what we choose to remember is not always, in fact, how things played out. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I, I thought about this when we were talking about Saved by the Bell. I like went back and watched the original series. And, and at first, Adira, my wife said uh, to me, um, let's go back and watch the original Saved by the Bell. I'm like, no, don't do it. Like, it's not, you're not, it's, it's going to ruin it for you from like what you remember it as a kid. And nine times out of 10, that's exactly what happens. You go back and watch that Saturday morning cartoon that you used to love. And you're like, oh my God, this is laborious I, I you know when when disney plus came out i like watched some of the old x-men cartoons and things like that i used to love was obsessed with them um and and it just you like couldn't get through an episode uh fortunately saved by the bell held up i think in a in 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 a way that uh, other things uh, didn't but i think you're you're absolutely right you know our um our memory about the way things were our experience of them in their time um you know uh, it's it's you know, we we keep on coming back to Torah. Torah is the same, but we've changed. That somehow makes Torah richer with each pass through. Um, the same isn't necessarily true for 
most pieces of pop culture um, uh, that are that are very particular to a given moment, um, and then uh, and then have a shelf life beyond that, right? We might yearn right. for them because they scratched an itch for us back then, and because you know, um, let's face it, we we humans tend not to live in the present moment. We either want to relive the past, or we're, we're we're anxious about the present moment, we're uncertain about the future. So the the nostalgia is comforting. Um, but it's a, it's a siren. Uh, it's a, it's a false lure. Let's, I think that's true. let's, let's, uh, I want to switch gears if we can also to make sure that we talk about the delivery system for this film, which is something unique. Um, uh, because of the pandemic, lots of studios have been uh, experimenting with, playing with how they were going to distribute their films. Um, uh, Disney plus, uh, released the the anticip highly anticipated live action Mulan uh, earlier in 2020, um, uh, trying to adopt a new sort of like Disney plus premium model where people pay extra for the movie. Um, uh, other, uh, other films have just been, you know, dropped onto the streaming services like Hamilton or, or Onward, right? Um, this is one of the first major- Onward actually came out- That's right. It came out in theaters, theaters before the weeks. pandemic, right? Two weeks yeah. before the pandemic. That's right. And then they just released it onto Disney+. Plus. Um, but, uh, you know, Wonder Woman 84 may be one of the first, you know, significant major studio temple movies- that was released directly to streaming. And then shortly thereafter, Warner Brothers announced that they were planning on releasing their entire 2021 slate uh, direct to streaming on, uh, on uh, HBO Max, um, a move that was not, uh, was not uh, echoed in its entirety by the other major studios. Uh, I think that people are taking, other studios are taking kind of a watch and see approach with Warner's being- And some directors out. were who, who have directed for Warner Brothers. Um, the first Warner Brothers big tentpole film they Tenet. experimented out in the theaters in the middle of the pandemic was Tenet and it did so poorly in the box right. office. Christopher Nolan was pissed. He was right. really upset about Warner Brothers' decision and this Warner Max announcement. It's not totally direct to streaming. Um, it's a hybrid model. Oh, that's right. They they did release it simultaneously in theaters. Uh, the 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 movie theaters were understandably the movie theater chains were understandably very upset about Warner's decision, which apparently was made without consultation with with any of those chains. It's uh it's uh that's a it's a proposition that makes me nervous as somebody who loves the experience of seeing a movie in theaters. I wonder what this movie would have been like. Um, in a you know crowded theater with with uh, legions of fans singing. I wonder if I would have liked it more. Right, um, but what? Let, let's just talk about like the significance of 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 this moment of this change, um, and what parallels, if any, does it have for the Jewish context in your view, Jesse? So I think there are a number of reasons why Warner Brothers is doing this. Um, the first is, right, these movies are delayed. Uh, I believe Wonder Woman 1984 was supposed to come out in yeah. July. Um, Disney, everybody keeps waiting for Disney Plus to put uh, Black Widow out on Disney Plus, and they're committed to not doing right. that. It's going to come out right now a full year later than it was supposed right. to if, you know, theaters are open again. From With regards to their streaming service, HBO Max has really struggled 
as a streaming service. They were banking on their huge, huge library of content. I mean, they have all these Warner Brothers movies, all these HBO series and shows and movies. They have a some uh, Max original content that they've put out there. The remake of The Witches was straight to HBO Max, for example. But not as exciting original content. So I think this is a way for them to up their game and increase their number of subscribers. Disney plus to its credit has a crazy amount of subscribers. They projected that five years into Disney plus launching, it launched a little over a year ago, right? It was uh, fall of 2019 that they would be five years in, they would be at 90 subscribers and 90 million subscribers. And at their first year's end, after one year, they were at almost 87 million subscribers. So crazy number. And Disney, which rules the world, uh, has uh, a lot more original content in the pipeline. They have all these Disney Plus Marvel Studios television shows come out. The Mandalorian has been Disney Plus's most successful uh, show. And they have more... Star Wars universe spinoffs coming out on Disney Plus as well. So they feel less of a need, I think, for movies to be put out on the streaming service. But we talked about this with the launch of Disney Plus, how streaming services a year ago on an old episode, how streaming services were changing the game and how we um, watched f- movies. Um, and was this the destruction of the modern day movie theater experience? And it could be that the pandemic has just exacerbated that uh i i wonder though if the streaming wars is also understanding that they're adjusting to the reality of now i think about how some synagogues have not been able to do so during this pandemic and we're waiting just for the pandemic to be over so that they could just get back to business as normal and as a result of the Jewish community and the members of our communities who really need community now, especially now, have really suffered and missed out on community as a result. They haven't been willing to adjust. Now, HBO Max is willing to adjust. They needed to in a way that Disney Plus didn't need to because of the need and desire for exclusive content. Um, what Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia needs is different than what Congregation Bethel and South Orange, New Jersey needs. Every community is different. We can't try to be like somebody else, right? We talked about this before um, before we reco- recorded this episode, that part of the DCEU's failure is that they're trying to be like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The DC characters are not like the Marvel characters. Their movies tend to be darker, um, more action-oriented, less humor oriented when they try to replicate it, it it fails and we see that hbo max is hbo max and they're trying to meet those needs what is interesting to me is when the world gets back to normal will movies begin opening up in movie theaters again or will they still be going straight to streaming services? The changes that we've made in our synagogues and institutions, will some of those changes be here to stay or will we go back to business as normal? I think it's a little bit of both, that there are things that we yearn for. Our synagogue, we're never going to not live stream ever again. Right? We are never going to, and I'm not just talking much about services. The fact that Shiva and, and you know baby namings could be over Zoom 
to offer that option for people. That's just, I think, a, a way that we're going to connect more to extended friends and family, even when we're able to gather and congregate in person again. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I, uh, I think that you know, the world, this goes back to the nostalgia question, right? The, the, you know, the world has changed, you know, the, uh, some of these were trends, like you said, that were already present before the pandemic, the pandemic um, exacerbated them or, or just like revealed the reality of them. Uh, and, you know, to quote another uh, DC movie villain, um, there's no going back, um, right? You've changed things. Uh, and, and I mean, I, you know, I, I, I worry and wonder whether movie theaters will even survive the pandemic. You know, I, I have a lot of skepticism about whether we'll be watching Black Widow in, in theaters yeah. uh, next May. Well, there there um, are two are two local movie theaters, uh, one in South Orange and the other in our local town of Maplewood, uh, our neighboring town, are have been out of business. Right. couldn't sustain it unfortunately regal cinemas uh declared bankruptcy and and they've closed amc has a really limited uh release of how many theaters they're opening they're trying to sustain themselves by allowing families to rent out theaters i heard a a theory that a company like disney could open up their own chain of movie theaters and right, Disney rules the world anyway. So right. Disney, then you cut out the distribution costs. You you, right. you you don't lose as much money. It's all profit. Disney ends up showing their own films in their own movie theaters. And then for super fans like me, who would love to see the Falcon and the Winter Soldier Disney Plus TV series, not just on my Samsung TV, but on the big screen, maybe they show some of those on the big screen as well. That may be the future, but we're certainly not going back to how things were before the pandemic. And I think that's true for the Jewish community as well. Yeah, I mean, so what you're what you're describing there, you know, is there, there are ways in which that creates, you know, if it's, first of all, it makes a lot of sense for Disney. I'm surprised that, uh, you know, uh, these longstanding relationships, these symbiotic relationships they've had with the uh, movie theater industry, I'm surprised that it hasn't given way to that already. Disney's already experimented with that. They own a couple of, at least I know that I know of a couple of movie theaters in um, in, in Hollywood, in, in the Los Angeles area, the, the one right across the street from uh, Grauman's uh, Chinese theater um, is, is owned by Disney. Um, and, but, and so there's, there, it makes a lot of sense on the, on the business side. Um, and for the, uh, and, and for the audience side too, it, there, there are ways in which it, it makes a lot of sense, but it, what it also does. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges that some of us in religious communities, um, have been, you know, the, the headwinds that we've been combating is, you know that that we that 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 just kind of further furthers the trend of having fewer and fewer spaces where the public engages and meets um, across lines of difference, right? So it's it's more it creates more sort of niche areas, more compartmentalization, um, and so you know and th that pressure is present within religious communities too. In some ways, that's good pressure, right? Like to be you know, to, to be clear about who you are and what you stand for um, and not 
try to be all things to all people. Uh, but it also creates challenges within religious communities, um, especially in a, in a, in a, you know, smaller Jewish environment like mine that actually does need to a certain degree, um, religious institutions to be a bigger tent. And then, you know, within, from the point of view of Jewish values, right? Like I, you know, I can speak for myself, but I suspect that this is true of you too, Jesse, that we, that we, you know, we believe that pluralism um, and diversity are Jewish values uh, and inclusivity, right? All those things are Jewish values. And we want to create institutions that, um, that are welcoming uh, spaces that are safe spaces that are um, inclusive spaces to people of all backgrounds. You know, I wonder the ways in which you know, this, the, you know, the, the, the pandemic exacerbates that trend for us that we have to, you know, be much more um, uh, uh, disciplined about narrowing our, our focus um, and, and, and surgically targeting our audience. I think it's twofold. It's being more narrowly focused, but also offering more entry points. Mm -hmm. Right. The amount of we talked about this as well when we talked about our streaming wars episode a year ago, the amount of original content that each streaming service is offering uh, has exploded as well because they know that they need to define themselves. What makes Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia unique? What makes Congregation Bethel in right. South Orange, New Jersey unique? Uh, we can't expect that people are going to walk through our doors. They need to trip over our experiences, literally and figuratively, both in in-person experiences when that is a reality again and virtually now. Well, right. And, and, you know, and I think related to that is, you know, I think that there's one of the, one of the sort of sub trends that, that enabled the mega trend of, you know, these, you know, the direct to consumer uh, media experiences is the um, consolidation of media companies, right? Like, dis like, you know, in the years, in the couple of years before uh, Disney launched Disney plus Disney bought uh, Fox, they bought uh, Lucasfilm, they bought uh, National Geographic, um, uh, some of the things they already had before, like ESPN, right? So they, they had amassed this, you know, sort of arsenal, Pixar earlier than that. Um, they had amassed this arsenal that was kind of built from the consolidation of a number of other media, right? Warner did that as well, you know, uh, um, in, in um, uh in, in collaboration, I think with Viacom, right? So, so that's existing. And I think that that trend ex is existing within um, the religious world as well. It is harder. It's going to be increasingly hard um, for the, especially with the proliferation of, um, of virtual experiences. It's going to be hard for the like mom and pop shul in Richmond, Virginia, um, to, to sustain its existence when, you know, my congregants could just as easily, um, uh, go, you know, uh, participate in, uh, in a better experience, um, in, in, in South Orange, New Jersey, in South Orange, New Jersey. <laughs> right. Um, um, you know, so right, it, it's better, you know, the survivors, the survivors in our, in the media landscape are the, are the largest and most and the best resource companies that could that could buy up as much property as possible, intellectual property as possible, and then have multiple avenues for a large number of people, but but like but they could deliver it, right? Um, well, I, I think one of the results of this pandemic is that there are going to be fewer synagogues. Yeah, 
um, which I think was a trend that was happening already pre-pandemic. And this is this expediting that process. Um, Partially that's because of financial resources. Partially that's because people are thinking about Jewish community differently, how they connect to community differently, the need for buildings differently and all of that. Right. And it, and it, and it forces us to, you know, to ask the question of each of us ask the question of, you know, what's, what's the value that we're adding to people's lives? How are we helping people flourish? Right. And if we're not, maybe we should, uh, uh, maybe our doors should close. Uh, you know, that I think that, that movie theaters are asking themselves the same question, right. In a, in a, in a context where your sole business was putting people in one large room together. And that was the experience that you were providing in an era in which that's no longer possible. And in some quarters, less desirable, right? I'm, I'm not necessarily in the majority of people who really enjoy going to the movie theater, um, right? Then, then, you have, then you have a real crisis on your hands. And I think that you're gonna, you're, you know, we're seeing that in, in the religious, we were already seeing that in some ways, but we're seeing, gonna see that more in the religious world is, you know, um, uh, what is the what is the actual experience that you're providing people? Um, and it can't just be, um, you know, the opportunity to be in a large room singing together. I think you're absolutely right. So there's a lot of wait and see. We're going to wait and see uh, how, from the media perspective, how the world ends up responding to Warner Brothers' decision. Um, I'm pretty psyched <laughs> about it. Gives us more content to binge. Uh, and watch easily. Um, I think it'll be a while before I feel comfortable going back to movie theaters. So the fact that I know that uh, everything from Wonder Woman 1984 now to Matrix 4 at the end of 2021 is going to be on HBO Max, that's great news for me. Right. I mean, here's the the flip side of it also, right? Which is, you know, I wonder if Wonder Woman 1984 would have been better on the big screen, but now knowing about the risks of, you know, contracting an airborne virus in an environment like that, I'm like extremely grateful that I wasn't in a position of having to risk my life to go see it. Everybody's doing home improvement projects, you know, during this pandemic. How many people are going to be putting movie theaters in their basements? Right. Uh, Well, so that wraps up our conversation about Wonder Woman 1984. Um, Remember, who is rich, one who's happy with what they have. Uh, and let's stick to that going forward, I hope. Amen. Uh, and uh, what we would like is for to hear what you thought about Wonder Woman 1984. And uh, for you, um, we, you know, we don't want to be like Pedro Pascal's character, but we just as much as the next person are are happy with with more. We'd love more uh, listeners, more subscribers, uh, more smash, of you involved in this smash. smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. Uh, and uh, that way you will never miss an episode. We look forward to being with you next time. As always, I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care.